the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And now turn to Revelation chapter 12. That's where I'll be spending most of my time tonight is in that text. And really only a portion of it as well. But uh, Revelation chapter 12, let me read it in its entirety. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them found in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and he stood on the sand of the sea. Well, may God bless now not only the reading, but the preaching of his inspired and errant word. Uh, yeah, you may have been feel, filled with fear and awe as you saw the title. And, you know, wow, the book of Re- we're going to preach the book of Revelation. Who does that? Uh, this is a book you stay away from because, look, it's scary. It's got dragons and things in it. And we never know what's going to go on when we open this book, do we? And yet, we are told again and again in this book that it is a blessed book for God's people. In fact, this is one of the few, few books that is, um, we are told from the beginning, it's meant to, meant to be preached. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear. That's right at the beginning in chapter 1. Who's the one who reads? The preacher. Who's the one who hears? The congregation. It's a book designed to be preached um, And we know why people stay away from it. It has its challenge. But I believe this. I believe you can understand the basic reason for this book. It is very simple. Uh, And I don't try to, I'm not trying to be uh, pretentious in saying that. Yes, you can understand the purpose of the book of Revelation. We're going to explain the purpose of that book to you. We won't explain every nook and cranny to be sure. But you can understand why you need this book. And really, um, I've called this sermon at other times, I called it (coughs) Conquer or Be Conquered. (laughs) Because the theme of conquering is central in the book of Revelation. We're going to look at that theme of conquering under two points. First, we're going to consider the call to conquer. And secondly, we're going to see the way to conquer. Conquering is pivotal. Well, first of all, the call to conquer. Why do I say that this word conquering is just absolutely fundamental to this book? Well, that's why I read that portion of Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation 2 and 3, the word conquer occurs over and over and over again. In fact, John speaks to the seven churches. Why are there seven of them? Um, We actually know from the New Testament that there were likely more than seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, We hear about the church in Hierapolis, for example, at the end of the book of Colossians, near Laodicea. And so uh, there were more than seven, probably, but for John there must be seven because seven is the number of completion. It is picturing the church in its entirety from uh, the time of Christ's death and resurrection until his return. And for that reason, Good Shepherd OPC is part of the seven churches. (laughs) You are part of the sevenfold church of God. And so you need to hear this message given to the seven churches. And to each of the seven churches, if I read through 
all of chapter 2 and chapter 3, which I didn't, but you can later. At the end, there's a formulaic saying. It ends formulaically. To the one who conquers, I will give. Uh, and various things are promised. They are all symbols of eschatological life. Let me give you just a couple of examples. For, for, for uh, the Ephesus, we heard, to the one who conquers, he will eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To Smyrna, to the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamum, the Lord says that the one who conquers will be given authority over the nations and will rule them with a rod of iron. The tree of life, the hidden manna, the white stone with a new name on it, and white garments. These are all things which are promised to the one who conquers, that they would have eternal life and share in the eternal reign of the Messiah. And so uh, it really is a call to conquer. If the church is called to conquer, though, what is it to conquer? What are the challenges that face the church? And here I think we'll see that this book of Revelation is actually quite practical, uh, if we can put it that way, because the, church, the challenges that faced the seven churches in Asia Minor are the same challenges that are facing the church today. They are the challenges that are facing you, Good Shepherd, OPC. And I think if you looked at those um, seven churches, there are only two who don't receive some kind of a, a reproof or, or a note of correction. Uh, the rest of them are struggling, which seems to be the case as we look around the world today. The, most of the church is struggling. You can boil, uh, boil down these challenges, I think, to four, four that repeat in various ways. First of all, for Ephesus, we already saw that they're commended for standing up for false teaching, but he says, I have this against you, that you have left the love that you have at first, or your first love. They were strong in truth, but they were lacking in love. And God says, that's not enough for you to be strong in truth, but lacking in love, lacking in love for me, or lacking in love for others. You must uh, overcome the trial to have truth without love. Also, there is the trial of the false teachers. Uh, Ephesus was doing okay in that area, but Pergamum and Thyatira is, are, are challenged up to their eyeballs and false teachers. There's also the trial of enduring persecution for the sake of uh, belonging to Christ. We see that in Smyrna and in Philadelphia. Will you endure persecution? Can you overcome that trial? Of, uh, you know, that's, we usually think of trials as being only about persecution. John is widening to say, no, it includes maintaining love, overcoming false teachers, uh, persecution itself. And then finally, the last one, I think uh, we see to the church in, uh, in Sardis and in Laodicea, the trial of being seduced by the pleasure and wealth of the world and ceasing to realize how much we really need the, the Lord. The Laodicean church, you know, Jesus says to them, you think you're fine. You know, you think you're all right. I say you're poor, blind, and naked, and you better come to me and buy. It's funny, in America, we tend to think of trials as only being, you know, the, the being thrown in jail and that sort of thing, but they're much more multifaceted. 
And I think America is drowning in those, all the other kinds of trials. They don't even know that they're having it. They don't know we're being tried by the false teachers or, you know, to have truth without love or the seduction of affluence and wealth. And why do I need Jesus? Because I've got the Internet. You know, that's the way we might think. And that is a trial that we must overcome. So, first of all, we see the call to conquer in chapter 2. But how are we to conquer? How does the church conquer these various trials, uh, uh, truth without love, false teachers, affluence, uh, persecution? And that's where we find the answer in chapter 12. We find the answer of how we are to conquer in chapter 12. Now, first of all, I can just pose this as an initial statement. Can you conquer these challenges by yourself? Can you do that? No, absolutely not. Revelation chapter 12 shows us that if we are to conquer these trials, uh, we conquer in, in and through the victory of the one who has already conquered. That's going to be pivotal. And as we look at chapter 12, it's broken into two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 6, deals with Christ's war against Satan on earth. And the second part, verses 7 through 17, deals with his conquering victory in heaven. You might even think, victory in heaven? What are, you, what are you talking about? Well, we'll look at it and we'll see. Let's actually begin with that second part, Christ conquering victory in heaven. And then we'll go back and look at the first part. Uh, verse 10 brings the victory of Jesus Christ, his conquering uh, clearly into view, his heavenly victory, doesn't it? Uh, look at verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Christ's conquering involves casting out of heaven, and, and get the picture here, Satan, Satan who is in heaven, standing before God, accusing Christ's people day and night. That really blows our minds, right? Uh, how is it possible for Satan to have any kind of a, a presence in heaven? Well, of course, we know that that's only possible if God would permit it to happen, if God would forestall judgment on time and permit it uh, for a time. And God can choose to delay judgment, can't he? Praise God, he's doing that right now, and the gospel is going forth to the world. Revelation 12, that mysterious picture of st Satan standing before God, it's actually given in the Old Testament. If you go back and look in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, and Zechariah chapter 3, Satan is pre uh, uh, presented as permitted to come before God and to make charges against God's people. He's accusing Job, and he's accusing uh, God's people in Zechariah chapter 3. And so apparently, God once allowed Satan to come and, and make legal accusations against you. <laughs> Satan was accusing you before God's throne. But notice in, in chapter 12, these, these accusations come to a screeching halt. And the question we ought to have in mind is, Why? What is happening so that he's once allowed to stand there and make these accusations? But something happens now. Uh, 
John says, now the authority of God and the authority of his Christ and the kingdom has come. And now he's thrown down. What is happening? Uh, what happens so that Satan is now thrown down and not allowed to make his accusations? And the key to seeing what's going on is found in verses 1 through 6. In these verses, we see a dragon at war with a woman. Now, a dragon is basically a very large serpent. Can you think of any other place in the Bible where there's enmity between a serpent and a woman? <laughs> right? That's, this is a one grand story that we're hearing about here. Yeah, we know. It's back in the Garden of Eden. The woman in Rev Revelation chapter 12 pictures not only Eve, but the entire church who is the seed of the woman and her child, Christ. For many years, I, I really misunderstood this passage. I assumed that since Satan was attempting to kill Christ uh, at the time of his birth through the, through the efforts of Herod, right? That, um, that uh, by killing all the Jewish babies, that uh, when... Uh, Christ is delivered from Satan, that that is when he was delivered from Herod's murderous attempts to kill all the babies. But that certainly is not the case. That cannot be the case. And let me show you why. We see in verse 5 that when the child of the woman is delivered from the serpent's attacks, verse 5 tell us that he was delivered as he was caught up to God and to his throne. When is Christ caught up to God and to his throne? Well, it wasn't when, when he escaped from Herod, was it? It was at his resurrection and even more so in his ascension into heaven. Jesus Christ being caught up to God and to his throne. That, my friends, that is the key to understanding why and when Satan can no longer accuse believers day and night before the throne of God. Think about it. As Christ goes up, Satan goes down. <laughs> Why is that? Why is Christ's ascension the key to Satan's being cast down? Well, the answer lies in understanding how Christ is different when he returns to the Father than before when he left the Father's glory. He's not the same when he returns, is he? He left heaven as God. He returns to heaven as the God-man. He returns to heaven and sits at the Father's right hand, not merely as God, but as the God-man, as one of us. And why does that matter? It matters because of what Satan is accusing us day and night of before the throne of God. What is Satan saying day and night? He's saying the same kind of thing he says uh, in Job chapter 1 and in Zechariah chapter 3. And in those passages, Satan is essentially saying, God, you will never be able to break the alliance between me and humanity. You will never be able to put this enmity that you have promised between me and them because you created Adam to represent the entire human race and he failed. <laughs> now they belong to me. They, they are eternally worthy of damnation. That's Satan's accusation. And, and we have to say that really, as far as it goes, he's right. He's right on that part. 
All those things are true of us. Because Adam, our representative, failed, we deserve to be sent to hell as God's enemies. Now, we open by looking at the trials that the church needs to conquer. But the ultimate trial that needs to be conquered is that one. How do sinners like you and I stand before a holy God and not be eternally damned? And Satan's case looks pretty strong. But what if God could provide another man? A man who, like Adam, was tested for obedience. A man who was condemned as a sinner for sinners. And what if God cleared this man from the verdict of guilty sinner placed upon him? What if he publicly justified him? What if he rewarded this man by raising him up into heaven and granting him the closest possible communion that God and man could ever have? And what if in raising him up into perfection, he caused him to be a new representative for God's people? You see, if that happened, Satan's got no more case before the throne of God. He can no longer accuse uh, humanity of not being able to come into God's presence because here comes a human being, the greatest uh, man, the God-man. He comes striding into heaven, representing his people. And Satan's case is thrown out of court as the God-man is caught up to God and to his throne. Just imagine what it would be like if in the courts of heaven, there was Satan making his accusations. You know, Adam York cannot stand before you. Mark Sumter, Nick LeMay, all the rest of you, sorry, they'll never make it. And in strides Jesus Christ as your head and your representative, the one who, is, who deserves to be there. Satan's charge that a man can never stand before God is thrown out of court. Man is representing us. Uh, that happened. The resurrected Christ entered into heaven, bringing his once-for-all sacrifice into heaven and being our living representative there forever. Now, verse 11 tells us then how we conquer the greatest trial, the trial of standing before a holy God as sinners. Verse 11 says, they conquered him. You, you conquer Satan by the blood of the lamb, the lamb slain and then caught up to God and to his throne and by the word of your testimony. Only if you are looking to this lamb, the lamb who gives his blood to cover sinners, whose blood is carried into heaven, the true temple. Uh, to do what the blood of bulls and goats could never do, to eternally atone for your sins. And verse 11 says that you need not only the blood of the lamb, but a word of testimony. Now, this testimony is the confession that you are to make before God and men from the heart. It is not a one-time confession. It is lifelong. You must follow him. Elsewhere, John says that those who belong to this one, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And you must follow him. 
even unto death. That's what verse 11 says at the end of it, doesn't it? Verse 11 says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. It's interesting. Here Christ's victory, uh, excuse me, here our victory is linked not only to Christ's death, the blood of the Lamb, but to our death. We don't die to save ourselves from God's wrath. That's very clear. Only the lamb who dies and who's caught up to God and to his throne can conquer the accusations that are before us there. But having conquered that ultimate trial, how are you to conquer all of those trials that we looked at in chapters 2 and 3? Those trials which will come against God's church between his first and second coming. How do you conquer the trials of having truth without love? How are you to conquer the false teachers? How are you to conquer persecution and the seduction and pleasure of wealth in the world? You are to conquer them by the blood of the Lamb, by the power of the Holy Spirit who uh, he sends when he is caught up to God and to his throne. But what does that look like? What does that look like as you conquer through that means? Here's what it looks like. Dying. In verse 11, John says, we conquer because we love not our lives, even unto death. And this doesn't mean that you might have to die or that you need to be willing to die. It means that as you conquer in Christ, you only conquer these trials as he conquered his trials. By dying. Take up your cross and begin your death march, Christian. The death you die to yourself and the death you die to this world. And that means that we only gain our complete victory over these trials, not as we give up some things for the sake of Christ, but as we give up everything for the sake of Christ. Now, this is certainly impossible to do by yourself, only as The life-giving spirit, Jesus Christ, dwells in you. uh, Only he can cause you to be a living sacrifice of this sort. Only he can cause you to pour out your life as a drink offering. But it is only as the church of Jesus Christ embraces death with Christ, dying to this world, dying to sin, only then will it conquer the temptation to have truth without love. Only as the church of Jesus Christ dies to itself, Will it be able to drive out the false teachers? It may cost it everything to stand up to the false teachers. It must be willing to die to overcome them. Only as the church dies, sometimes, yes, sometimes physically dying, will it conquer persecution. Only as the church dies to itself and to this world will it be able to overcome the seduction of the pleasure and wealth of this world. I alluded to this passage a moment ago, but I'll say it again. Revelation 14.4 says that those who belong to Christ are those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And my question to you is this. Are you willing to follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Are you willing to follow Him to the cross? Are you willing to give up everything? follow him 
Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You see, the book of Revelation is not, and I was saying this to Nick on the way down. He said I should, yeah, use that illustration. It's not some complex puzzle that we are to figure out. Sometimes the book of Revelation is like a, a secret decoder ring. You know, we get out, we pull out our decoder ring and we hold it over the book of Revelation. And let's map this out and let's map that out. And yeah, you have to work on it. It's not so much a puzzle to be solved. It is a life to be lived. It is a call to live and die with our Lord who conquers for us and calls us to conquer in him. The book of Revelation reveals that only those who possess the Christ who was slain for them and who was caught up to God and to his throne, only they will conquer the greatest trial, enduring God's judgment. And so look to Christ. And as, you're, as you find your life in him, do what God commands you to do at the beginning of the book. Conquer the temptation to have truth without love. You don't want that at Good Shepherd OPC, do you? You want the truth, but not without love. Conquer false teachers. If uh, there's false teaching that comes in in whatever kind of way, and it always will. Conquer persecution. Conquer the seduction of pleasure and the wealth of the world. And how are you to conquer them? You conquer them by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of your testimony, even communing with the Christ, even communing with Christ in his death, dying with him, as you love not your life, even unto death. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that uh, there is a clear message in the book of Revelation. Uh, indeed, if ever there were a practical book, it is this. There is a call to conquer. There is so much which must be conquered. We cannot do this on our own strength. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb. We conquer through this Lamb who was slain and who was caught up to God and to his throne. And as he's caught up, we thank you that that accuser is thrown down. He has no more place to accuse us in heaven. He still accuses us here. He, he whispers into our ears that we are not worthy to stand before you. May we look to the slain lamb, the one caught up to God and to his throne. Uh, we pray that we would withstand the assaults of this evil one as he makes war against the rest of the seed of the woman who is us. We pray that by the grace given to us in Christ, we would overcome uh, these challenges listed in the beginning of the book, even though, and not just as a mere possibility, though it requires us dying to ourselves so that we conquer by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, as we love not our lives even unto death. Enable us to do this by your power and your spirit to your glory and for the good of your church. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.